coming at you from New York City. It's the Real Deal Podcast with your host, Ian Phillips. Welcome to the Real Deal Podcast. My name is Ian Phillips. The geek shall inherit the earth. That's what I want to talk about right now. Get it? See what I did there? The geek shall inherit the earth. Um, this week started off with some awesome news I heard that Seth Rogen, hey Seth, what's up, you're awesome, uh, Seth Rogen was able to confront one of the executives who got Freaks and Geeks cancelled, and Seth went up to him and, of course, basically called him out, and the guy said, oh, you know, Judd wasn't accepting our notes, Joe wasn't taking our notes, low ratings, and it was just all BS, and you know what? There's something kind of awesome about that. It's Revenge of the Nerds, people. Revenge of the Nerds, the geek shall inherit the earth, all of that. What I'm trying to say right now is that the tides have changed, and the world is now in a geek culture. It's no longer... I don't, I don't know if I quite grew up in the time where nerds were as alienated as they were maybe in the past. I mean, that's basically what every movie in the 80s is about, the guy who doesn't quite have it together, the whole group of guys that don't have it together, and they're bringing the fratty, suited-up clubhouse down. That's what Animal House is about, right? That's what Caddyshack is about, right? But anyway, Seth Rogen, I mean, I guess you could call his nomenclature stoner, but, and he was a freak on Freaks and Geeks, but you know what the point I'm making is that, I don't know, things are... Things are changing, and some people are getting really mad about it, like, oh, nerds are in control now. I think it's cool. Like, you know, I've never quite had, like, I don't know what clique I've always quite fit into. People have told me on many different things. Some people have said, oh, you're such a nerd, and I'm like, no, I'm not. Other people have said, oh, you're such a hipster, and I'm like, no, I'm not. And other people have said, oh, you're an idiot, and I'm like, yep, you, you nailed it there. You got that right. I am one of those. But, like, you just see it everywhere. Like, the all there was, like, five news stories coming out of DC Comics today about an Aquaman movie, which is real and not just an entourage fantasy, and a Green Lantern reboot, because we all needed one of those for some reason. Back to Freaks and Geeks. Today I'm going to, like, later on I'm going to talk about one of my a pop culture milestone in my life and a different one, but Freaks and Geeks is also one of them and I talk about it all the time but it's still not enough because that show is amazing and it gets better with time and I think about the fact that it just could not exist in that culture back then where it was on NBC it was put on Friday night so nobody noticed it it was completely different it was more sensitive and darker than any show about high school ever was before and if it came out today it would have thrived it might not have been on NBC, but it could have been on Netflix or Hulu or Showtime. Who the hell knows? There would have been so many more places for it. And I think it's really awesome that Seth Rogen got to confront this guy. That's really cool. And... Yeah, the means of control are in the hands of the geeks now, and that's a that's a good thing. It's it's good for may, maybe for I guess you could say the less manly men, the ones who are more sensitive, 
And those are the people we see on screen now. Well, maybe not in comic book movies because, you know, those guys are superheroes. And I am not that. It's just amazing to think. Ten years? No, it was 15 years ago. Freaks and Geeks was getting kicked off the air. And now the network executive who did it looks like an asshole. It's just right out of a movie. It's a perfect Revenge of the Nerds scenario. I don't have enough nice things to say about Seth Rogen. There's there's plenty I can say. All right, so um, another one of those directionless episodes. But um, anyway, so I didn't get to see a new movie this week or one that I would talk about. I did see The Fly for the first time, so maybe I can discuss that. So I decided that it's October, and I didn't really feel like drinking a pumpkin spice latte, so I decided to celebrate the season by watching a horror movie and i popped in david cronenberg's the fly which i had not seen before um it was it's like every cronenberg movie it was gross it was really well directed and it was compelling and i hate to say this but i think maybe there was something missing i can't point it out um but i will say that it's one of those movies from like a bygone era another time it's like it's a movie about a guy turning into a fly and like that doesn't happen until like halfway until the movie and nobody would have patience for that nowadays and I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that about it. Also, is it just me or does Jeff Goldblum have some kind of contract with every studio that he has to appear shirtless in at least one scene of the movie or else he'll walk off? That's what that's what I think. Um, yeah, so it's gross and it's really amazing that they derive so much emotion out of this kind of story. But, um, it was making me think about, I was talking about the eighties earlier, but I just like, it's a movie that I believe it is a remake, but also it's a movie I feel like somebody's going to want to remake and I hope they don't. And I know there can be good remakes and remakes aren't always a bad thing, but I'm just thinking about this. And one thing that's good about not remaking a movie and instead watching the original is that it can serve as an unintentional time capsule. The Fly is very much a movie from the 80s. I mean, you get to see the, the like the computers, which look ridiculous today, but like for that time looked awesome. It's like this guy's using an, this amazing tele- teleportation machine that he invented, and the technology looks like even worse than like an Atari. And then I'm pretty sure there's also a scene where Gina Davis just, like, sticks her finger into Jeff Goldblum's open wound, which we now know is probably could spread disease. It's not the best thing you could do. But I really like it. You just get an idea of the era from watching the movie. It's what you should It's what you should do. I also need to watch more horror movies. I took a class last year about horror movies, and it was, like, the best class I ever took. And just cool that, yeah. Um, so I didn't see any new movies this week, like I said, um, but I am going to talk about Pulp Fiction, which, uh, celebrated its 20th anniversary, and I have a lot to say, and you know what, we're going to take the break right now, and then when we come back, I am going to spend a lot of time talking about Pulp Fiction.
Welcome back to the Real Deal Podcast, everybody. I just have one question for you. Do you read the Bible, Brett? And I have yet another question. Does he look like a bitch? These are just many of the important questions that come out of Pulp Fiction. Yesterday, the day, October 14th, um, by the time you hear this, it will have been a few days away, but yes, but October 14th was the 20th anniversary of Pulp Fiction. And even at 20 years, it does not look a day, a day over one years old. That sounded creepy, but it's different in movie terms. Um, Pulp Fiction is a very special place in my heart. It's my favorite movie of all time, depending on what day it is. Some days it's Pulp Fiction. Some days it's Goodfellas. Um, for some people, Pulp Fiction's like the Tarantino movie they saw first. The like every like a, there's like a Tarantino movie for every generation that somebody watches and changes their life. Um, I saw Kill Bill first, so for me, it was all about Kill Bill was the one that changed my life. Kill Bill Volume One. I got it for some reason. I had no idea what it was, but it was the same idea as with Pulp Fiction, where I was like, "How can they do this? Like they're chopped that guy's head off, and I'm laughing for some reason." Is it okay that I'm laughing? Why is there blood coming out like a geyser? Why why are they using so many racial slurs? You, you can tone it back a little bit. That's the beauty of Pulp Fiction. Everything in Tarantino's career is that he's like one of the most unfettered voices of our generation because he could tone everything back and he doesn't. There doesn't need... When, when Marvin's head explodes... There probably doesn't need to be that much blood. They could have probably used the N-word like 200 times less. But they didn't. It's, it's the world they created. Um, Pulp Fiction was Tarantino's second feature. And he's so confident already. You know, I, to, I wrote an article for Mike.com that's a plug about 20 things you need to know about Pulp Fiction. And I was doing research into the process. And, like, everything you could imagine about how this script was written was true. Tarantino wrote it in complete isolation. An apartment in Amsterdam, on tons of coffee, probably on drugs. And he, like, wrote it on a giant, on all these, like, pages that were crazy everywhere, like, on the road, Kerouac style. And he had to have somebody sit down and, like, polish it out for him. It's just amazing. The guy's a genius, but he's also a functional illiterate. And he admits that, too. He cannot spell a word to save his life. And that's part of the charm. It's just amazing. Like, I think with Pulp Fiction, like, it's one of those things that, like, you watch it and, like, everything about it should not work. And you let it slide because he makes all these terrible things work about it. Like, there's scene, there, there's a, I don't know how long the scene is with the foot massage. Or not the foot massage where... Uh, Jules and uh, Vincent go out in the hallway and completely pause the movie and just start talking about a foot massage for five or so minutes and like the ethics of giving your boss's wife a foot massage and what that means when they're just about to knock on the door and then they say hold up we have a few minutes when does that happen in a movie I feel like every movie I see is always rushing to get to the plot points rushing to get there when are they going to meet this character when are they going to overcome that obstacle? When are they going to run through the airport and stop their love from leaving on that flight to Africa where 
they decide to stay with this guy instead of curing AIDS or Ebola or whatever. But, like, he doesn't... Like, Tarantino is such a lover of movies, but he doesn't want to get to the point that every movie is going to. He's seen enough movies to know, like, what... Like, when you watch a lot of movies, you start to see what makes them good, what makes them bad. And he loves movies so much that he knows what he doesn't like about them. One of the things I've also found Tarantino made me realize I love is just when people are just talking about something completely unrelated to the plot, and that's what the entire movie is. Um, you know, I didn't rewatch Pulp Fiction before I did this, and maybe it would have been better if I did, but I don't feel like I need to, because I feel like I'm watching it all the time in my head. It's like a great record. It just It just keeps playing and playing, and it comes up at random moments, and you'll hear... Vincent and Mia talking in Jack Rabbit Slims. Um, you'll hear the song "Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon" or "Son of a Preacher Man." Um, you'll hear Samuel Jackson talking about a big Kahuna burger. It's just like it's it just that it never leaves your head. That's why it never ages. That movie just I like I kind of wish I was born in 1992, so I was two years old when it came out. And clearly, had no idea. I really wish I was there for – it was a revolution that was kicked off. The movie made for $8 million, wanted to gross $200 million worldwide. It really did legitimize independent film, put the wine scenes on the map. It wasn't – like I said, it wasn't Tarantino's first movie, but it really was the one that showed – it's inspiring to this day because it showed that if you have a good idea, it can succeed. But everybody saw the wrong parts of Pulp Fiction and decided to rip it off. And we got pieces of shit like the Boondock Saints for still going on to this day. People see things and they're like, they, they, when people try and imitate, no, Tarantino, people have accused him of stealing. He's a great imitator. Because he knows what makes things good and bad, and he knows the right things to steal. All the they're not imitators. All these other people, Troy Duffy, they're imposters, and they see the little things. They're like, "Oh, these two badass guys shooting everybody. If we make a movie like this, everyone will love it." Or, "Oh, let's put the let's put flashbacks in, and then everybody will love it." No, I mean, look, they look like you look at that that college. That poster that's in everybody's dorm room was in my dorm room, of course, of John Travolta and Samuel Jackson holding the guns. They look badass there. But then you see the movie and you realize, like, John Travolta's character is such a goofball. Um, in the, like I said before, in the scene where he accidentally shoots Marvin in the face, that scene was originally supposed to be much darker. And then Travolta, who does not get enough credit for what an amazing actor he is, said that they should change the scene and he should just say, I shot Marvin in the face. And that little line made that scene a stroke of comic genius. Like, here's this guy who's, like, supposed to be a professional hitman who accidentally shoots somebody in the face and says it like, oh, I stepped on his toes. My bad. It was an accident. Like, I, like all the characters are so well-defined. And, like, you rarely, like, they don't, like, most of them don't change that much through the course of the movie. The only character that really changes is... Samuel L. Jackson's uh, is Jules because he decides he wants to quit the life. Nobody else really changes, but yet they're still fully formed characters. 
That's another stroke of genius. The other thing people like to rip off is the flashback structure. And it's very unique because, oh my god, they kill one of the main characters in the middle of the movie. And then he just comes back 20 minutes later. Oh, there he is. Like, nothing happened. And, like, I've seen people put it in... Like, you can just... If you go on Wikipedia, you can see, like, the correct order of events. Like, if the movie had been in order. Um, and it would have ended with Bruce Willis or Butch and Fabienne riding away in the motorcycle and saying, Zed's dead, baby. And I was thinking about it. And if they did... If he did just structure it in order, it still would have been a great movie. It would have been interesting because it would have ended with Butch and Marcellus and then it would have kind of become a movie about Butch and Marcellus and still the main character would get killed off. I mean, it would be kind of crazy because you'd have Jules. This character has a major revelation that would normally happen through the course of a whole movie, which does happen in Pulp Fiction. But if it was in order, it would happen like halfway through and the movie would completely change. So... I think either way you could structure it and it would be great. I know somebody put on like, I think put online like you could watch or no on in Memento, there's like a feature on the DVD where you could watch the movie in the correct order. I'm like I don't know I I've never done it but what would be the point? I'd be interested in seeing Pulp Fiction in the right order just to see if everything hits because it's fascinating to me that Tarantino decided that this was the only way that the movie could be told was that it had to start in the middle and then go back to the beginning and then to the end and then to the middle again. Tarantino, I think, has made better, maybe made better movies since then. But nothing that's structurally genius. There's really, there really is nothing like it. And it's so, so quotable. Like, you know, it was very, it's, we were talking about, I was talking about, you know, the geek, that the geek has risen, uh, the geek shall inherit the earth, revenge of the nerds. That's what Tarantino was. He was at the beginning. I think this whole, like, change from, like, of the geek inheriting the earth really started in 1994 with Tarantino and Kevin Smith ruling Hollywood and on their way becoming Hollywood insiders. Because Tarantino, I mean, he'd made Reservoir Dogs before and, like, he was hot, but, like, not that much. After Pulp Fiction came out, he was a complete insider. And he hasn't completely changed the system. Movies aren't completely better now, but he's still there. Like, here's this just video. He's, like, a story that everybody thinks they can have, but, like, can. He's a video clerk from L.A., no prospects, and he just went on and made a work of art. something to marvel at um lost my train of thought here so there's, there's just so many things to say about pulp fiction just the the dancing it just it feels like it's from it's like a frankenstein movie of all these different pieces of pop culture and it's like tarantino doesn't structure the movie through real experience at all but it still feels like he experienced it because he lived life through movies like I hate the fact that every time I tried to write a screenplay, Tarantino is, like, at the forefront. I'm like, I want to imitate Tarantino. I'm like, you can't imitate Tarantino that's, like, trying to parody a parody. It just can't be done. 
I mean, there are things you could do. You can, you could be inspired by the good things he does and not just imitate like Troy Duffy. You could be like, oh, like, let's have interesting dialogue. Let's throw in some things you might not expect in the story. Some strong female characters. Those are the good things to be influenced by. But it has to be good dialogue that you want to hear about. Not just like, you can't just have any kind of thing and then it's just automatically good. Um, so yeah, this movie, see, I saw it in seventh grade. Changed my life since then. I think everybody who's seen it is never the same. If you haven't seen it yet, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like it should be an obligation on earth at this point that everybody has seen it. It'll, it's just... Like, we live in a very weird time where, like, I've been talking about for the past few weeks that it seems like TV is better than movies. And it's not because there are bad movies out there, because there's a lot of great movies. And this weekend, there's Birdman and Whiplash opening, and I can't wait to see those. But, like, there's few movies that have the, the feeling of Pulp Fiction, like, the joy, all the kinds of emotions. And, like, when you're watching it, you just you just get mad at yourself for not watching enough other movies. Like, you realize it is the full potential of what movies could be, is Pulp Fiction. And yet, Forrest Gump won Best Picture that year. This is controversial, I know. I mean, Forrest Gump, it's a great movie, not an amazing movie. But it also, I mean, it, it, it makes sense. I won Best Picture. It represented everything the Academy loves. And it's made me realize that movies like Pulp Fiction were not meant to win. But also, like, it could. It was the hottest thing that year. And people loved, like, I mean, like I said, Valentino was an insider. And, I mean, Forrest Gump is still memorable. Life is a Box of Chocolates is still memorable. Um, it's lines that are in the lexicon. But it wasn't revolutionary. If only the Oscars would reward something that wasn't just great, but actually changed the way movies were. It's too bad. That's why movies... That's why hmm, the Emmys don't really reward the things that they keep rewarding Modern Family. I don't know what it is about award shows and not rewarding the things that cause a revolution. I think it's just fear. Just scared that the structure is about to be taken down. And the statue of Tarantino will be erected. Um, so like I said, if you haven't seen Pulp Fiction, go see it. I'm going to end it. This my tribute to Pulp Fiction... Um, by heart, I am going to recite Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. which by the way, it's not, that's like that passage. You can, every time I go to a hotel, I open the Bible and I flip to Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, and the words are not there because Tarantino made it up. That's part of the absurdity and I love it. There's just a fake Bible passage in his movie and it's become more memorable than the real Bible. Um... You can look, I'm going to do that when we come back. We'll take one more quick break and I'm going to take a breather. And we're back, everybody. Um, I know this is weird that it's just me talking for 20 minutes straight. It's weird for me, too, and it's really disorganized. Uh, again, I'm sorry that it's like this. Uh, it's not the way I intended it to be, but I'm trying to make it right. 
if you are listening, thanks a lot for listening to me getting my brain farts about movies and TV and such out in the air. Um, and as I promised, I'm going to do the Ezekiel 25, 17 speech. And I know I can't prove it, but I'm doing it from my head right now. I am not looking at IMDb quotes or anything right now. Um, and I might stumble, so maybe you'll know from there. Because there's a tricky part. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the iniquity and tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Keep it real, everybody. Mm -hmm.